Today's sermon comes from Nehemiah 10, verses 28 through 39. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, and all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walking God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make an atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring into the house of our God according to our father's houses at the times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions the first of every tree, the wine, the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priests, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe with the tithes to the house of our God and the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Certainly you've heard the phrase, the tail is wagging the dog, or the caboose is driving the train. They're actually phrases that are impossible, right? They can't happen. I've never actually seen a tail wag a dog, never actually seen a caboose drive a train, right? It's an impossibility. When it comes to the relationship between grace and obedience, there is something that should never happen. Actually, it can't ever happen. It's an impossibility. And that is that obedience drives grace, or that obedience earns grace. We've seen, leading up to chapter 10, especially last week in chapter 9 of Nehemiah, the pattern that happened over and over in Israel's history, and that is this. Disobedience, grace, obedience. What you didn't see in chapter 9 was disobedience, obedience, then grace. 
Grace drives obedience. We saw in Romans 5.20, the Apostle Paul saying, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. You know, in Romans 5.20, two verses later, Paul already, and I mentioned it last week, Paul already anticipates the, the response to that. Wow, where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. Well, then great. Let me just sin all the more. Get more grace, right? Two verses later, Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, right? Nehemiah's, Nehemiah chapters nine and 10 really parallel Romans chapter five and six. And let me just pause before we get moving here. I recognize it's Mother's Day. And that means that we have a bunch of mothers in this room who are dealing with mommy guilt. Mom guilt is a real thing. That you're not doing enough. You're not doing enough for your children. You're too angry. You're too upset. You're disciplining out of anger. All these things, and you, and you, you heap up the mom guilt. Now, for the rest of you, we heap up guilt. Let me make a very, very critical statement here that you have to hear before we move on. Guilt-ridden obedience or guilt-driven obedience leads to slavery, drudgery, and sadness. Grace-driven obedience leads to joy and freedom. Nehemiah chapter 10 is a picture of grace-driven obedience where God is laying out how life should be lived, how life is designed to be lived, and that when we do live according to God's design, we actually experience this tremendous joy and freedom. And that when we fail to measure up, we receive this amazing grace that with joy and freedom propels us back into obedience. Okay? Guilt-driven obedience doesn't produce that. And that's not what Nehemiah 10 is about. So if grace drives obedience, the question is this. What kind of obedience does grace produce? What kind of obedience does grace produce? It's all set up in verses 28 and 29. So in, in the first 27 verses of chapter 10, right after the amazing relentless mercy of God in chapter nine, at the end, the people say, we're gonna make a covenant. We want to pledge our obedience. We want to respond to this amazing grace. And then chapter 10, the verse 27 verses, is all the people that signed this renewed covenant, this pledge towards obedience. And then verse 28, we read, all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God. That's, Israel was always to be distinct from the nations. In the same way, the church is always to be distinct from the world, not for pride's sake, but for the sake of design. That this is how God has made life to work. And then in verse 29, they say they're going to observe all the commandments of the Lord. And then it's going to be laid out. What are the commandments? What is, what kind of obedience does grace produce? First, we're going to see inward obedience, right? Inward obedience. Verse 30 talks about marriage. Verse 31 talks about the Sabbath. Let's start with marriage in verse 30. The command is for Israel to not marry 
the peoples of the land or foreigners. They're not to marry outside of Israel. Now, why was that the case? This was not a command that was driven by race. This was a command driven by worship, that when they did marry people's outside of Israel, they would adopt their worship practices, they would adopt their false gods, right? And so God is commanding them not to do that. Here's the other thing. There was a great temptation that day to climb the social ladder, not anything different than what we experience today. Uh, and marriage was a great way to climb the social ladder. Marriage was a great ladder to climb socially. And so, and so there was a temptation for God's people to enter into marriage outside of Israel to potentially build their social capital, build their social wealth, build their reputation. The command is no, don't. Then we get to verse 31 with the Sabbath. Verse 31 says, well, what happens when the foreigners, the people of the land, actually start coming into Israel and selling on the Sabbath? And, and what, what you see here is there, there was a potential loophole in the system where, where God's people could say, oh, hey, wait, these are foreigners. So when we buy from them, we're not making Israel work. These are outsiders. And it became a loophole where they could say, hey, we're not making our people work. We're just, those, we're making the foreigners work. We're buying from them. And we get to still maximize profit and get a lot done on the Sabbath. It was just a loophole. And what we see here with both of these commands, marriage and Sabbath, is exactly what we see God over and over in the Old, in the Old Testament calling Israel out for. And that was this, this outward or external obedience with inward rebellion. The prophet Isaiah says it this way in, in Isaiah 29, 13. Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And Jesus picks up Isaiah in, in, in Matthew chapter 15 and says the same thing. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. When God says in the Old Testament, he says, I desire obedience and not sacrifice. What he's saying is, I don't want your religious show. I want your heart. I want your inward motivations. I want your inward motivations to match your outward behavior, right? Inward obedience. God cares about your motivations. Uh, Elizabeth Elliot shares this uh, fictional story about Jesus and his disciples. She says, one day Jesus is uh, uh, with his disciples and Jesus says to his disciples, hey, I want you to pick up a stone and carry it for me. And so all the disciples pick up a stone and Peter, being really clever, picks up this tiny little pebble, he sticks it in his pocket. And Jesus says, follow me. And so they start going on a journey for the day. Gets to be about lunchtime. Jesus calls his disciples over and he says, I want you to hold up your stone. And they all take out their stone. They hold it up. Jesus kind of waves his arm and, and turns the stone into bread. And he says, there's your lunch. Clever Peter, pretty disappointed, nibbles on his pebble of bread, still very hungry. And so after lunch, Jesus says, okay, I want you to pick up another stone and I want you to follow me. So Peter now, very wise, picks up not a stone, but, but a boulder. And he hoists this on his shoulder and he's staggering under its weight and he's sweating 
And Jesus says, follow me. And so all afternoon, Peter is laboring and laboring with his boulder on his shoulder. And, and at the end of the day, as it approaches dusk, Jesus waves his disciples over to the bank of a river. And he says, now pull your stone out and I want you to throw it in the river. So Peter shot puts his boulder in the river. And then Jesus says, okay, now keep following me. And Peter is visibly upset, visibly disappointed at that steak meal that just went in the river. And Jesus turns and looks at Peter and he says, Peter, who were you carrying the stone for? Inward obedience. I remember when I graduated from seminary at my seminary, I still remember it, at the, at the commencement ceremony, the commencement speaker, he was a pastor. This is all I remember from his message. And it still sticks today. He looked at us, bunch of seminary grads, ready to go change the world. And he said, will you just do something for Jesus? Not go do something for yourself or go do something for the church or go do something for the world. He said, will you just, will you do something for Jesus? Inward obedience that everything I do is for Jesus, period. No, because of what he gets me or because of what I, period, because he's worthy. Grace drives inward obedience. Grace grabs hold of the heart and the motivations. So that's the first kind of obedience that we see grace produce, inward obedience. Second, upward obedience Starting in verse 32, the people pledge to give these various offerings in the temple, right? So look at verse 33. These are offerings for the service of the house of our God. That was the temple. Verse 33, grain offering, regular burnt offering, sin offerings to make atonement for Israel. Then verse 34, wood offering. All of these offerings that accompanied the sacrificial system in the Old Testament were a means of grace. These offerings were a means of restoring humanity with God, reconciling that relationship. And these offerings were always a response to what God had already done. They were not a means of manipulating God, although Israel would turn it into that because that's what the nations did. That's how they viewed their gods. These were never a means of manipulation. They were always a response to what God had done and what he was doing. And there were two main categories of the offerings here that I want you to see. First, you had the burnt offering, the sin offering, and the wood offering. All three of those were very similar. They all were around making atonement for sin. We see this uh, even before the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. We see it in Genesis 14, when Abraham brings his son Isaac to the top of the mountain in obedience to God to sacrifice him. Isaac asks his father, behold, daddy, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son which of course he provides the, the ram in the thicket, right, as a substitute, which is all pointing forward to the lamb that one day would be provided, and that is Jesus Christ 
himself. So you had those, the burnt, the wood offerings that, that really represented atonement. God coming to rescue us in Christ to unite us back to him in relationship with him. Then you had the grain offering. And the grain offering was basically a response to God's goodness and provision. That God provides everything, right? That God owns everything. That all of this, all of these offerings were an act of worship. And so what you see here as Israel is renewing the covenant with God and making this pledge of obedience, they are pledging to respond to God with right worship. Responding to God for who he is and what he's done. Now, where does that leave us today? The sacrificial system has been fulfilled in Jesus. All those sacrifices, the animal, the wood, all the stuff that was brought, all of that was pointing forward to Christ. Christ has put an end to the sacrificial system because he has died once and for all. So what's that mean for our obedience today in worship? We don't bring animals in here to slit the throat and make a sacrifice. We don't bring wood, right, to start burning for a burnt offering. We don't do any of that. So what does it mean to respond then? The book of Hebrews is a, is a wonderful book that detail by detail speaks of how Jesus has fulfilled all of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, that everything finds its fulfillment in him. And then we read, the implications of this in Hebrews 13, 15. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. A sacrifice of praise. We don't bring an animal in. We don't bring wood in. What do we bring? A sacrifice of praise to God. Praising him, worshiping him for who he is. That's how we respond in obedience, is a sacrifice of praise. And, and notice in Hebrews, it says the fruit of lips. Fruit is born out of sap that is running through the limbs, right? That's alive. That produces fruit. Fruit is just an outgrowth of what's happening inside. And so should our praise be a, an, out, an, an outworking of what is going inside in the heart that we just talked about. Now, let me take you back to the, the first point when, when Jesus in Matthew 15 says, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That is a picture of not the fruit of lips, but the work of lips, right? The work of lips is just verbal assent with a heart that is far from God. But the fruit of lips that, that Hebrews talks about here is completely different. That's lips that are speaking, but it's, it is bubbling out of a heart that is worshiping God. It's bubbling out of a heart that is, that is in awe of who God is. What does it look like to stand in awe of God? What does it look like? Your heart is amazed by the grace of God. Your mind is gripped by the truth of God. Your sense of right and wrong is permeated by the justice of God. Your faith is resting in the power of God. Your imagination is guided by the beauty of God. Your life is steadied by the sovereignty of God. Your hope is filled with the glory of God. That's what it means to stand in awe of God. And then out of a heart that is gripped by that come 
some words. And, and that's the key here in, in Hebrews 13. It's the, it's the fruit of lips. These are, we're talking about real sounds, real words that are coming out, that are a sacrifice of praise to God. Isn't it interesting? You'll never find in the scriptures a command from God, or should I say God begging you to spew out words of critique and complaint. Those just come out of the heart. That's the natural default of the heart. In fact, Israel in the Old Testament, the 40 years in the wilderness, you say, what characterized those 40 years? Basically, 40 years of grumbling and complaining. And you and I know that well. Nobody has to beg you to be critical. I mean, will you please be critical? I mean, please just offer a critical comment, right? Or will you please complain? Just, I mean, I'm just begging you to complain about something. We don't have to do that. We naturally do that. Upward obedience is the obedience of lips that praise God, that praise God. And let me give you three very pointed points of application around this. Private worship, as you go worship and corporate worship. Private worship. Do you spend time daily or just regularly? Do you have a rhythm of, of speaking to God and just thanking him for who he is and what he's done and what he provides in your life? Right? That's what private worship is, a rhythm of that. That as you go worship, you know, we're in a broken world. You're working for a job. That there, there's, just, uh, there's plenty of brokenness you could talk about. There's plenty to complain about. There's plenty to critique. Listen, if you're a member in this church, there's plenty to critique about Christ Church East. There's plenty, plenty to critique, right? I mean, we live in a broken world, okay? As you go worship is, is, is what we read in Philippians. Think about those things that are lovely and honorable and speak about those things that you would praise God throughout your day. In the midst of just hard circumstances, I'm gonna praise God. I'm gonna praise him, that upward obedience. And then corporate worship. That speaks to the importance of what we do here on Sunday mornings. That would be similar to what Israel did in the temple in the Old Testament when they came with their offerings to worship God in the temple. Sunday mornings are are so important. And what happens here is this is where we, along with all the other churches in the city of Jacksonville and around the world, but this is where we meet with God. That is what happens in corporate worship. Yes, we come and meet with each other. The body of Christ comes together. We meet with one another. That is certainly true. But high priority, first and foremost, we come to meet with God which has all kinds of implications around how you treat Sunday morning worship. Engagement-wise, uh, now I'm gonna say this, and let me just say, I, this is oozed with grace. This is oozed with life happens. Some of you are bringing a big old tribe of, of, of kiddos to church, I get that, okay? Um, but it's engagement when you're here, is also punctuality. Now, let me, let me just speak into that, okay? If you worked for a big company and, the, the, and, and you're just a, a worker in the company, you're like, you know, 
seven layers of management down, whatever. And the CEO of the company sends you a personal email and says, hey, tomorrow, I want you to meet me in my office at 3.30. The CEO of the company, I can guarantee you, you wouldn't show up at 3.45. You'd probably show up at 3.20 to make sure you didn't get caught in traffic, and at 3.25, you'd be at the door, right? Okay, I can feel it already. I, I mean, I can just feel it. Like, the, oh, he's putting the guilt on us. Listen, in corporate worship, there's an order to our worship. And do you know what the first thing that happens in our worship is? It's called the call to worship. Do you know what that means? You might go, hey, uh, we do it every Sunday. Well, actually, I don't know we do it because I show up 10 minutes late. I miss it, okay? Listen, the call to worship, that is not Parker telling you to worship. Or if I do the call to worship, telling you to worship. That is God himself through his word calling your heart into worship because guess what? You can't drum it up. You can't drum it up. You can't say heart worship. No, God has to call you into worship. So all I'm saying is you're missing a big part of the service, right? When you come in after the call to worship because it's in the call to worship that God says, I am through my word gonna call your heart that's distracted, that's confused, that's depressed. I'm gonna call your heart out of that into worship. That's a beautiful thing. So what kind of obedience does grace produce? An inward obedience, an upward obedience of worship, continually offering up a sacrifice of praise to God, and then finally, outward obedience. Outward obedience. In verses 35 to 39, we're introduced to two important words. First fruits, firstborn. That's, I'm gonna lump that together as one. And then tithing. Now, what do these words mean? Let's start with the first fruits. God's people were called to bring first fruits. That is the first fruit you know, that was an agricultural society. The first fruit that ripened in their field, they were called to bring that fruit to the temple to offer it to God. They were also called to bring the firstborn of their, uh, of their cattle and of their sons and to bring that to the temple to set it apart as holy to the Lord. Beautiful example of this is when Jesus himself is presented in the temple in Luke chapter two. Listen to this. And when the time came for their purification... According to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. First fruits and firstborn was a declaration that everything belongs to the Lord, that we don't own anything. Everything belongs to the Lord, and we are simply stewards. That means we're like property managers. We don't own the property. Think about a property manager. Does not own the property. He simply takes care of it for the person who owns it. God owns it all. It belongs to him, and he calls us to steward it. That's what first fruits and firstborn was all about, that God owns it all. Second word here, second word, tithe. It gets introduced in verses 37 to 38. And the tithe would be collected by the Levites. The Levites were like the, they were the priests of the temple. 
the Levites would collect the tithe and then bring it to the storehouse of the temple. Now, what was the tithe? The word tithe literally means a tenth, right? Or 10%. And so how that worked, uh, and we see this even uh, early on when Abram uh, brings a tithe to Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a priest. Hebrews 7 says he was a priest uh, that, that ultimately was pointing to Jesus Christ as our ultimate high priest, that Abram brought a tenth to Melchizedek, right? A tenth of, of, of what he had. And we see this uh, in, in Deuteronomy 14, right? We see this, that tithing continued under the Mosaic law. Deuteronomy 14, tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. So if, if someone's field yielded 90 bushels of wheat, they would take nine of those and bring it to the temple. Or if, uh, if someone, someone's cattle, you know, had, they had 30 calves, they would take three of those calves and bring it to the temple. That was what it meant to tithe. And actually in the Old Testament, there were, there were three kinds of tithes. There was the, the, um, the tenth, right? Or the, that was called the Levitical tithe. That was when they, just, they would bring a tenth of their income. There was also the tithe of the feasts, which was the annual feast where they would travel to Jerusalem like the Passover to celebrate, that tithe was like, think travel expenses, you know, all it would take to get the family to Jerusalem. Then they had the tithe for the poor. That was collected once every three years. That was a tithe for the poor. It was a mercy type of tithe. When you combine all of those tithes, uh, it, it amounted to probably 20 to 25% of an Israelite's income. Now, you say, what's that mean for us? Well, New Testament doesn't give any percentage. New Testament says we're to give from a joyful heart. But everything in the New Testament is expanding and getting larger. So we can certainly say this, that the tithing requirements of the Old Testament certainly don't go down in the New Testament. Now, here, here's what I want to speak to. How does this translate today? Well, in the same way that God's people would bring their tithe to the temple— we see this in Acts chapter four in the early church when, when Barnabas sold a field and he brought that tithe to the apostles' feet. So today in the church, we bring our tithes to the church. We lay it at the elders' feet and the elders take it and with great wisdom and prayer, decide how to fund the ministry and all it takes, right? To proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in this city of Jacksonville. Now, how does this connect to obedience? Oftentimes, we think about generosity as something nice or as an add-on, almost like a tip. So when you go to a restaurant uh, and, and your, your waitress or your waiter helps you, and at the end, you tip them, right? Or uh, someone, a valet person that uh, valet parks your car, and then you tip them. You're not required to do that. Like if, if you don't tip your waiter or waitress when you walk out of the restaurant, you're not going to get arrested right? You're not going to get put in cuffs and taken away. It's not the kind thing to do. It's pretty rude, but you know, it, it's a tip. God views tithing much different. When you look at the end of Nehemiah 10, look at the end of verse 39. The priests and the Levites say, with all the people, and this is the, the covenant they're renewing with God, the Pledge of Obedience, they say, we will not neglect the house of our God, which they had been doing prior to the renewal of the covenant. 
Malachi the prophet writes his prophecy during this time, this time of Nehemiah. Listen to what Malachi says about neglecting the house of God. This is how Malachi says it in in chapter three, verse eight. He says, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. Now that's a pretty severe indictment. That's the, the Lord saying to the prophet, Malachi, you're robbing from me. You're stealing from me. And they say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. Now, listen. I know I'm getting in your business right now. And I know you may be feeling uncomfortable. You may be feeling, I don't know what you're feeling guilty, convicted, comforted, challenged. I want you to engage with God's word, that that tithing, that giving, that generosity in general, giving, but especially tithing, is an act of obedience. And to not tithe is an act of disobedience like any other sin. That's what I want you to hear, is that when Israel is renewing their covenant in Nehemiah 10, they're renewing their, when I say outward obedience, that, that giving away from self, towards God, towards his kingdom, towards his church. And that we would not just view tithing as a tip or an add-on, like, well, I mean, it's, it's nice, it's, but it's not. No, it's actually disobedience not to. As any other sin is. So I'm not highlighting the lack of tithing. I'm just putting that up there with every other sin that we deal with. That most others, we say, yes, that's disobedience. But somehow when it comes to generosity, We see it as almost this nice if you do it, but if you don't, no big deal. And God says, no, that's not the way I view it. I view it as an act of obedience. Grace produces outward, away from self, towards God, generosity. I remember years ago when I was was running a youth trip, organized the youth trip, and it was was like a week-long trip, so pretty significant cost to it. And uh, this one uh, kid was going to go, and the parent was, it was like just past the deadline, and, you know, and they didn't know what the cost of the trip was. So she just signed a blank check and gave it to me. And I went, oh my goodness. I could drain her bank account and leave the country. I really didn't think that. I did think that, you know, but no, I wasn't going to do it. I tell you what I did think though. Wow, she really trusts me. I get to fill this in. (laughs) She really trusts me. Inward, upward, and outward obedience is like signing the bottom of a blank sheet of paper that at the top says God's plan for my life. And you say, wait a minute, that's scary. I I don't know what I'm signing off on. And God says, exactly. See, at the core of obedience is trust. Trust in the character of God. So if you run that through what we've talked about, the inward obedience, that I, the temptation to maximize profit in every corner of life, in every corner of this world. And the Sabbath says, no, rest. 
Don't maximize every last angle of profit. Rest, right? That, that takes trust. Okay, God, I'm gonna trust you on this. I'm gonna trust that you're gonna take care of me, right? Or the, the, uh, the upward obedience of worship to say, man, I, it sure feels good to be critical. <laughs> it sure feels good to complain. It hurts not to. It hurts not to jab back. It, it hurts to just to, to praise God and, and forgive. And boy, God, I'm, gonna, I'm trusting you on this. And then the, the outward obedience. I, wait a minute. This means if, if I'm going to tithe to God's work through his church to his kingdom, that means that I have to maybe give up something I love. That's hard. God, I'm, I'm trusting you on this. See, at the, at the core of obedience, is trust. And let me just end with this. What more does God have to do to earn your trust than to have given up his one and only precious son to die a horrific death on the cross in your place so that you don't have to and to rise from the dead to bring you new life? That is a God who is worthy of trust, every last bit of the trust of your heart. Let's pray. Father, I'm convinced I know it in my own heart, my own life, and I am sure in a room of this size that we are so often governed by guilt-driven obedience. And Father, we confess that. We confess the, the, the drudgery, the slavery, the sadness, the joylessness that comes out of guilt-driven obedience. And we hear loud and clear from you through Nehemiah chapters 9 and 10 about this wonderful grace-driven obedience that produces joy, that produces freedom, that when we're living life according to your design, that we flourish, and that when we fail and have to confess and repent and turn back, we once again receive your grace that propels us once again into joy, and into freedom. Father, this morning, as we take the Lord's Supper, we are eating and drinking grace that is intended to transform our hearts and our lives into obedience. Father, as we sing now, would you prepare our hearts for this meal? And we pray this all in Christ's name, amen.